Tonight, we are going to be in the book of Mark, chapter 5, which I know you're like, book of Mark? We're supposed to be in Daniel. Well, we're in the book of Mark tonight. We're taking a little hiatus. We're going to save Daniel for next week as part of our Christmas message. But as I was kind of praying and thinking about what to do for tonight, it's not like I knew it was going to snow. I actually had no idea up until a couple hours ago, and then someone told me at work that it was snowing. And then I said, oh, well, I guess it's good that I'm not doing Daniel tonight. But I think this is going to be a really special message, and this is why we're live streaming it too, because I want everybody to be able to be on the same page with this um, thing that we're going to explore tonight, this concept in Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 34. Mark chapter 21, verses th- uh, 21, Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 34. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. One of our kind leaders will pass one out. If you're taking notes, the title of this message is See Beneath the Surface. See Beneath the Surface. We're going to read the passage, we'll pray, and we'll jump in for the evening. says Mark chapter 5 verse 21. Now when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered to him and he was by the sea. And behold one of his uh, one of the rulers of the synagogue came Jairus by name. And when he saw him he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly saying, "My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her that she may be healed and she will live." So Jesus went with him, and a great multitude followed him and thronged him. Now a certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years and had suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. Immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? But his disciples said to him, You see the multitude thronging you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see her who had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Let's pray. Father, we open up your word this evening and we pray that you would teach us, you give us vision, you help us to see beneath the surface, to be able to see people as you see them, see situations the way that you see them, and see this world the way that you see it, so that we don't grow attached to things that ultimately are not going to satisfy, but ultimately will not please you either. So we pray, Lord, all these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. I don't know how many of you know this. This is kind of sad by now. I don't know how many of you know this, but I actually was in a very heavy rock band at one point in my life. And we called it hardcore music. And so those of you that do know, know that I used to scream instead of sing because I couldn't sing back then. I had long hair, and it was a lot of fun. And 
in playing this music, unfortunately, one of the consequences is you have people that may be a little, how should I put it, tough in their mosh pits. How many of you know what a mosh pit is? How many of you have been in a mosh pit? Okay, so back in the day, I think it's still the case that they would have these like moshing gangs where people would, you know, you would go to a show or whatever and there would be certain people that would be like just trying to, trying to cause trouble, trying to rough it up, looking for people to just punch in the face and stuff. And they all had names and whatever. And I was playing one of our, I think it was our last show. We were playing the show. And we found out one of these moshing gangs were, were coming. And these people, like, they're mean. Like, they beat people up. They'll punch you in the face. People be unconscious. They go to the hospital. And they just look to, they're not even, like, there for the music, really. They're just there to cause trouble. So I found out at the last show we were playing that there was going to be a moshing gang that was going to show up. So I was like, oh, snap. We're all going to die. And then I was warning all my friends I was still, like, a youth leader back then, so I was telling all the youth group kids, don't come. It's going to be dangerous. You might die. And so it was, like, I was all stressed out. Now, we actually get there to the show. We're loading in, and all the bands are loading in. And I see one of the guys who was rumored to be in this band that was, like, part of the moshing gang. And the guy was huge. It's, like, this giant guy, and, and he, he was, like, bald, which is, always means that he has deep growling screams, you know. Like, this guy just looked mean. And he looked straight at me. And I looked at him back, and I was like, oh, no. And I'm, like, looking around, like, is he looking behind me, you know? And he's looking straight at me. And he points at me. And now I'm terrified. I was terrified before, but, like, for other people. Now I'm terrified for my life. So I'm looking at this guy. He's looking at me, and he says, I know you. And I'm like, how? How do you know me? And he's like, you used to play Dance Dance Revolution with me. And I'm like, wait a minute. And I recognized him. This guy, he was like one of those like chunky kids that would always play like Dance Dance Revolution, but it was like actually really good. And so like we, how many of you know what Dance Dance Revolution is, by the way? Yes, everybody does, right? It's like I used to be obsessed with Dance Dance Revolution. We go to the East Brunswick Mall back when they had the machine. We play all the time, spend all of my money, play hours and hours and hours. And he just had like this little nerdy community of people that would play Dance Dance Revolution. He was one of them. He was a geek. So once I knew that he was into Dance Dance Revolution, I was safe, and I was fine. And I was like, man, I completely judged this guy. I think he still beat up people afterwards, but not me. But I completely judged this guy before I even met him, right? Now, that's a silly example, a true story, actually. But I think in some ways, isn't it true that we judge people before we meet them? We judge a book by its cover, and there's all types of people in this world, but I think it's so important that we, number one, don't fear people, but number two, we see every individual on this planet as a person that God wants us to show love to. Every single person. Now, if we just grasp that single concept, right, that there are no enemies anymore, that each person is someone we're supposed to show the love of Christ to, then that means that each individual that comes into their path, whether they're actually a bad person, whether they want to cause us physical harm, they're malicious, they're a person that gossips about us, or they're a person that maybe they're not cool or they don't fit into the crowd. Every single individual is a person that we are supposed to love and show Jesus to. Everyone in this world. Now, in this passage, what we see is Jesus is asked by this guy named Jairus, who was a Pharisee. So this guy was prominent, almost maybe like a local pastor would be today, not like prominent like, you know, he's looked up to. But in, in that circle, like, that was kind of his function. He'd be 
all around and people would know him. And beyond that, people would look up to, to this guy back in, in those days. And so Jairus has a sick daughter and asks Jesus, please come to my house and lay your hands upon her and, and we pray that you, you would heal her. And so Jesus agrees to do this. And as he does, something happens. Now it says that there's a crowd, a multitude all around Jesus. And the, the multitude were so all around Jesus that it was thronging him, meaning he was pressed from every, every side. Now there's a woman who had an infirmity. For 12 years, she had a flow of blood. So she had some kind of um, problem where she couldn't stop bleeding. And that made her ceremonially unclean, according to the Levitical law. You couldn't enter into a place of worship. She was basically an outcast. If she had a husband, she was probably divorced or never married. This person was a complete outcast by every standard of that society. She couldn't be in physical contact with anyone. All of those things would indicate this woman should not even be in a crowd like that. And yet, Jesus stops on his way to heal somebody else and engages with a woman that everyone else would ignore. So I'd like to ask tonight, what kinds of people are outcasts in our society? Maybe it's somebody from the LGBTQ community. Maybe someone who claims to be a different gender than they are and you're not really sure how to refer to them or they, they walk into your circle of friends. I think today there's all kinds of different people that are outcasts, people that are outsiders and people that are mistreated, misaligned. Maybe they're poor. Maybe they're not good looking. Or maybe they're just annoying and they're just outcasts. They're put on the outskirts of society. People mistreat them. People don't want to invite them to things. Uh, I know you know no nothing about what that's like, right? When you see middle schoolers around. It's like last year, maybe you're a freshman, right? And like last year is like, man, I love middle schoolers. And now you're like, Psh, eighth graders, <laughs> they're so little and immature, right? We can always look at other people and start judging them and labeling them. But this is not how Jesus calls us to act with the people around us. Take a second to turn to James chapter 2. James chapter 2, I want to read a couple verses there. James chapter 2. James chapter 2, verse 1. The author says, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings in fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, You sit here in a good place. And say to the poor man, You stand there. Or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he had promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme in the, that noble name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Here, James is writing to the church saying, hey, listen, any time that you're showing partiality, and in those days, that's what happened, is people would come into the synagogue, the place of worship, 
and they would say, oh, here's the rich person. You sit here in, in the best seats. And then that poor person who comes in, smells bad, you kind of sit over there like where you're not going to be a distraction. And James says, aren't you, aren't you showing partiality? Don't you remember that God has no favorites? Why would you even do that? Especially when the rich people are the very people that oppress you and misuse you. Why would you treat them in high regard and disregard the poor when God has chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to them? We have it backwards in our society. And this is why James says we have become judges with evil thoughts. He says that in verse 4. Why does it say that, evil thoughts? I think it's because when we show partiality to people, in other words, we treat some people better than others, we prove that we are lovers of ourselves rather than lovers of our neighbors. Because when you love your neighbor, it doesn't matter who the person next to you is. It's just this is a person that I'm supposed to love. Whether they're scary, whether they're weird, whether they're annoying, doesn't matter. They, they are a neighbor and therefore a person that I'm supposed to love. That's what the parable of uh, the Good Samaritan is all about, right? The person who was the enemy, the enemy of the Jew, the Samaritan, came and took care of him. Whereas the Levite, the priest, they just walk on by because they were too busy. And when we are lovers of ourselves rather, rather than lovers of our neighbors, we will look at people as a means to accomplish what we want rather than these are people that we are supposed to love. Now, how many of us, if we're honest, spend way too much time at church, at youth group, at school with a, with a guy or girl that we like rather than that kid that's really annoying or just kind of awkward or weird? If we're honest, Right? Don't we become lovers of ourselves when we show up to a place and we're all thinking about, like, how can I get what I want out of this evening? Rather than how can I show love to the person that, that's next to me? It's not about what I want. It's about showing love to that person. There could be a person in this room. You came out here on a, on a snow night and you still feel like, I still feel like I don't fit in. I still feel like I'm not a part of, of the family here. And... Our job as individuals is to think about the community, to think about how we can show love to one another. Now, why is it that we are naturally drawn to talk to people that are attractive, cool, etc.? I think it's because it's easy to see their apparent usefulness. I'll explain what I mean. I think the reason why we'll talk to the cool people, the people that are popular, is because it's easy to see how they fit in into the kingdom of God. The athlete. Obviously, if this person's a popular athlete or he's, he's really good at what he does, he can, he can have usefulness in the kingdom because this is a person who's going to be able to use his talents and gifts for the Lord. A person who's rich, the same thing. If we just become friends with this person, maybe he'll donate money to the cause or the church or us or the mission trip. Same thing with a person who's intelligent. If I befriend this person, if I befriend Alan because he's Asian, then I'll get good math grades, which is not true. That's why everyone copied my answers always failed and they got mad at me and I told them I'm only half Asian. <laughs> it's easy to look at somebody and their qualities, their talents, and to just be like, ah, oh, I see where they fit in, therefore I'm going to befriend that person. But this is the exact opposite of what God wants us to do. We are not supposed to go to the person that's really cool and popular and say, that's the person I want to be my, that, that I want to make my friend. We're supposed to look to the person that's poor, unattractive, ugly, 
completely just the margin, uh, marginalized by society and say that's a person that's welcome in the kingdom of God. Otherwise, what do we do? What we're essentially saying is for every new person that walks on the door that you have to look a certain way, talk a certain way, or be a certain way in order to fit in, which is the opposite of what the good news of Jesus is. Listen, this is what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. Paul says to the Corinthian church, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. If you feel weak, you are the perfect candidate for God to use you. We say often here, but the only type of person that God can use is an empty vessel. That's the only prerequisite. It's not that you're gifted, talented, whatever. You just have to be empty of yourself so that the Holy Spirit can fill you with all of him. I don't remember who said it, so I, I tried looking it up. I didn't have, have enough time. I think it was A.W. Tozer, so forgive me if it's, if it's not. But I was reading somewhere where um, this one author was basically saying, why is it that we, we look at people that are really gifted, really talented, and we say, oh man, if only that person was a Christian, then they'd be able to really do damage for the kingdom of God. If only that really popular, famous person, imagine if, if that famous person got saved. Imagine what they could do for the kingdom of God. Imagine if that person was like another Tim Tebow or something. We're always looking at those, those people with those qualities and we're saying, if only they were Christian, then, then it'd be amazing, right? But what this author was saying is, but you realize if they do not have the Holy Spirit, we're looking at purely carnal gifts, things done completely without the Spirit, and just assuming all you have to do is add the Spirit for them to be useful. We have it completely backwards. In fact, some of those natural giftings and tendencies can be a hindrance to the gospel because people look to that and not to God. We are supposed to be those that God uses and people come in and like, I don't understand why this is working. People should come here on a Sunday or come here on a Friday night and be like, why is everybody here? Alan's really not that great of a teacher. Because it's not about the individual. It's not about the gift. It's about God and his love. So maybe, here's what I'm going to suggest. Everyone look up here. Maybe everyone's been having such a hard time inviting friends to youth group because you've been inviting the wrong people. You've been trying to convince popular, really cool people to come to youth group. It's great. They need to be saved too. But the heart of God is to invite everybody, including the poor, including the people that are annoying, including the people that are just like, I don't really know if I want that person to be a Christian, including your enemies. Everybody is invited to, to the table to be able to meet with the Lord. Luke chapter 14, verse 12, this is what Jesus says. He also said to those who invited him, when you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. We're to be inviting those people out, the people that can't pay you back. Now, what I'm going to say is not a guilt trip because, like, I, do, I, I mess up in this area too. But, like, for instance, what we're doing tomorrow, the, the Christmas caroling thing, the nursing home ministry, 
it really is like Joe said. It's not about our singing and how gifted we are. It's about doing unto others that can't do unto us. People that can't give back. The nursing home people are never going to leave the nursing home and knock on your door and like, hey, I brought you a gift. It's not going to happen. This is the ministry that God's called us to do. Completely selfless. It's not about me, about my talent, about my gift. It's about showing up and being Jesus to people that can't pay me back. So that's why we do it. And this is what Jesus has done even in Christmas. Right? Jesus has come to us as a helpless baby. So think about this. Along with our Christmas theme that Lloyd's going to teach on next Sunday? Yes, next weekend. Um, imagine if you were living in Jesus' day and you were like, you had a house. You're old, you have your own house, probably have a wife and kids or husband and kids, whatever. And in this house, you have a knock on your door. Not like that. You have a knock on your door and it's Joseph and Mary and little baby Jesus. And you have no idea who these people are. They're not prominent people. Mary's a teenager. And you're just like, ah, smelly people, newborn baby. Ah, I don't know. Should I let them in? Would you let them into your house? Here's a random person and his family, and they, they need a place to stay. Would you say, sure, I have room for you? Or you'd be like, ah, you know what? That person across the street, they might have room. They have a bigger house. It's kind of inconvenient. I've been up all day. I'm busy. I don't know. Listen, ministry will always be inconvenient. Always. Because it's all about self-denial. It's not about us. If ministry was convenient, it wouldn't be ministry. We'd be ministering to ourselves. It's all about the other people. Now, if I told you it was Jesus, everyone would be like, oh, of course, Jesus. I, I made you a space, and we got the hot tub going, and we got everything you need. It's here. We got a feast. We got everything. If you know it's Jesus, but if, it, if you don't know it's Jesus, and it just looks like some random poor family, how many of us would, would actually do that? And this is where the Bible actually talks about, hey, watch out, because some of those poor people that you're ministering to, you actually might be entertaining angels. They could be angels in disguise, these people that you're being Jesus to. And Jesus even says, at the last day, people are going to come, come up to me and say, basically like, hey, Jesus, like we, we prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, all this stuff. And he says, where were you when I was poor and sick and in prison? When did you do any of those things to me when I was, when I was in, in, in need? And they're going to say, when were you one of those people? See, because we don't often see it. We're not thinking about it. So, in summary, Jesus, this is your first point for tonight. The other points will go faster. Jesus embraces the outcast. Jesus embraces the outcast. So if you feel like the outcast tonight, the good news is that he will not turn you away. That God's plans are big enough to encompass the universe and detailed enough to include you. He can minister to Jairus, a guy who is well-to-do, and he can minister to the woman who is the outcast. And then if you know an outcast, we are to be Jesus to them and draw them in. This is the message of Christmas, and this is what we're supposed to be aiming for next Friday. When we have our Christmas message, and it's like Christmas party, yes, invite your friends, but invite the people that you wouldn't normally invite. Invite the people that you're like, I don't know, I'm not really, it's kind of awkward, like, I don't know. Invite that person. You'll never know if you might touch the life for all of eternity. Our second point is found is as we examine a little bit longer into verse 25. It says, now a certain woman, back to Mark chapter 5, 
Certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years. We talked about that and had suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. When she had heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment, for she said, if only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. I love this. Because what it's talking about here is a woman who realized that she was at her complete rock bottom. There's no other avenue. She had exhausted every other possibility. Luke, another author, records about this story in, in chapter 8, verse 43, that she had spent all her livelihood on physicians and could not be healed by any. So as she was spending all of her money trying to be healed of this infirmity, things just got worse, not better. And she's going from doctor to doctor, and in those days, people were superstitious. So they could have done a lot of wacky stuff. And today, it's the same thing. You can go to doctors, and they can mess you up. But how much more in those days when they had less advanced medicine? The point is that this woman had tried everything, but her disease was something only Jesus could heal. So here's the thing. For us, it's true too, that we're not to be wasting time looking in the world for what only Jesus has. That's your second point. Don't waste your time looking in the world for what only Jesus has. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. This is what God says. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. The two evils that people often commit is not only the sin against God by neglecting him, by seeking themselves, but then the things that we chase after, these idols, can actually provide what we hope that they provide. I have a pastor friend who recently said, and I thought it was a great definition of idolatry. He said, idolatry is worshiping fantasy. Idolatry is worshiping fantasy. Isn't that a great definition? Because what you're doing is you're taking your imagination and you're envisioning it to be something that it will never be for you. You're taking money and envisioning all the happiness, what it's going to provide. You're envisioning a relationship. No problems, no arguments, no nothing. And this is what it can do for me. It can make me feel fulfilled. You're looking at success. You're looking at the perfect job. You're looking at all these things. And it's a complete dream. It's not real, but you're believing in it anyway. This is what idolatry is. We raise up false gods for ourselves and we pray and we sacrifice. We do everything so those things can ultimately fulfill us, but they can't. I don't know if you know the, the history of Calvary Chapel. This is kind of like our church, Calvary Chapel, but there's like 1,600 other Calvary chapels. Started in the late 60s, early 70s by a whole bunch of hippies and this old dude named Chuck Smith who basically he just kind of like ministered to this. He had a heart for like the hippies. And the hippies were all like smoking and they're all being promiscuous. And there's all kinds of crazy stuff that happened in those days. But they just knew. They knew that the things that they were pursuing was not going to be able to fulfill them. And so Chuck Smith just gave the basic message of the Bible and just kind of shared like, hey, this is what the Bible says. And today I feel that we're increasingly approaching that kind of era where, and I'm sorry, I'm getting really distracted. So those of you that are speaking, like, can you just stop? Otherwise, I'm going to have to embarrass you on live stream, which will be really awkward. Thanks. Um, this is so important. Don't miss this. I think today we're living in a day where we will absolutely see 
God do another miracle, another revival in our country? Absolutely, guaranteed. The question is, do you want to be a part of it? You're going to sit there and watch everybody else have the time of their lives because they, by faith, believed, I don't know, I'm just another kid, but I'm just going to believe what the Bible says. I believe that there's a God. I'm going to read this book and just trust and believe by faith that it actually has the power to transform lives. Actually has the power to fulfill me. Everything else, you can try. Go, feel free to leave this building and try anything else in the world. I can tell you like five people, I can't name them here. I can tell you five people in the past month who have come up to me and said, I tried it and it has not fulfilled me. People who on the outside look like everything's perfect. The happiest people having uh, depressive breakdowns. People who are calling me and asking me about the hope that's only found in Jesus. Because you know what? When you've exhausted every other possibility, you've gone to every other physician, you've gone to every other well, you're going to find out everyone else is dry. They don't have the answer. You can learn that by experience. You can actually go out and try it if you want to. Or you can say, I don't want to ruin my life. I don't want to make those mistakes. I'm stupid enough to just believe it. I don't have to know those things. I don't, have to, I don't have to smoke weed. I don't have to go partying. I don't have to go have sex. I don't have to do any of those things. I can just take God at his word and believe that he knows what he's talking about. That's it. I, I just want so badly, I want so badly for this generation, mine included, to be able to just put everything else aside and say, like, it doesn't, not, all these other things just don't matter. And then you're not going to look back and regret it. It's going to be the most exciting thing ever. Most people don't realize that's even possible. I can tell you, like, this could, and, and the, the thing about this, too, is um, since people don't know the Bible, like people that are unbelievers and stuff, they didn't grow up in church like you or, or myself, the little things that you say will, like, completely just like rock their world because they've never heard about Jesus. You don't have to be an expert on the Bible. You don't have to be an expert on apologetics. All you have to do is have your life transformed. You just share that with others and watch what happens. It's going to be exciting. So I think the only prerequisite for that is consciousness of sin. Despair at your own life, looking at yourself and saying, my goodness, I don't know if I die tonight I know where I'm going. Do you ever consider the fact that Jonah went up to Nineveh, which was a very detestable, wicked city, and went up to them and said, hey, 40 days, God's going to judge this whole place. Everyone's going to die. Good luck. And he left. And they all repented. There was a consciousness of sin, an awareness of guilt before God. And this is where grace comes in. This is not about like, listen, God loves you. That's it. You don't have to like perform at your best. You don't have to go evangelizing in order for God to love you. It just is. That's the way it is. But listen, when we have a consciousness of sin, then we also have the consciousness of grace when we receive that free gift. Of my goodness, I know that I was on a path towards hell and then God chose to rescue me. And you fall in love. And from there, everything else is easy. Okay, here's your last point. Last point is this. Genuine faith always receives an answer. Genuine faith always receives an answer. 
for those that were talking, if you want to talk to me afterwards, that's fine. I just didn't mean to call you out. I just it really, just really bugged me. So we can talk afterwards. And I, I don't think I've ever done that before, by the way, but just, just had to do that. Sorry. Verse 29. Immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? But his disciples said to him, You see the multitude thronging you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see her who had done this thing, but the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. So last point is this. Genuine faith always receives an answer. Jesus heals in this story two very different people using two very different methods according to their faith. Think about this. First method is Jairus says, if you could only come to my house and lay your hands on my daughter and pray, then she'll be healed. That's one method. Then there's another person who says, if I can only touch the hem of his garment, if I can only touch his clothes, I will be healed. And which one is it that received the healing? Both of them did. Both of them received according to their faith. Now this woman, her request was embarrassing because she was already supposed to be away from everybody else. She was an outcast. But she was convinced of Jesus' power and was willing to do whatever it takes, be shunned by everybody else, pushed around by everybody else. She was willing to step out knowing that Jesus had the power to heal her. Now, that being the case, my question is, how do you know which prayers God will answer positively? I'm not saying like the obscure Christianese of God always answers prayers. Sometimes it's a no, and sometimes it's a wait. Like, I know, I know that's true, but that's not sometimes helpful. Because when you're praying, you feel like God didn't answer. You're like, man, why didn't God answer? Like, the answer is probably no. And you're like, ah, oh, okay, it's a no, great. You, you look at the scriptures, and you're like, I thought if I prayed in faith that it, I'm going to receive whatever it is that I'm praying for. How come God's not going to answer positively in this case? Well, how do you know which prayers God wants to answer? Mark chapter 11, verse 22, shows us what always receives a positive answer, okay? You want to have a completely radically transformed life and world and, and everything? This is how you do it. Jesus gives us the key. Remember when Jesus talks about, like, moving mountains and stuff? Like, how many wants to move a mountain? I want to move a mountain. How many in history have moved mountains? Absolutely nobody. So what's Jesus talking about? Verse 11, verse 22. Jesus answered and said to, to them, the disciples, have faith in God. For surely I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you will receive them and you will have them. Okay, so now it's faith and belief. But then this leads to, well, does that mean that I have to change the way that I pray? And, and when I'm praying, not just like praying for the bicycle, but praying in faith, believing, I really will get this bicycle tomorrow. No, absolutely not. Because what's that, what that is doing is putting the emphasis on you and not putting the emphasis on God. So what in the world is Jesus saying, this, saying when he's talking to his disciples? Have faith in God 
and then you just say, be removed to this mountain, and it's going to be removed. What does he actually mean, and how do we make sure that all of our prayers are answered positively? Here's the answer. You have to look at Scripture, other passages of Scripture, to be able to understand all of Scripture. So you compare Scripture with Scripture to get the clear picture. Huh. I probably stole that. The Holy Spirit prays for us in our weakness. The Bible says your greatest weakness is this. We don't know what to pray for. We don't know how to pray. We don't know what to ask for as we ought to. So the Holy Spirit comes in to help us in those times of weakness. Listen, the only missing element between seeing prayers answered and where you are now is just are you praying the things that God wants you to pray for? That's faith. So many people get this wrong, and this is like, been on my heart completely, like so much so that like wrote a song about it this week. Think about this. God doesn't tell us to just like muster up faith and just go do crazy things. That is absolutely not what he asks you to do. He doesn't ask you to just like, and some, some churches actually believe this, which is kind of weird. You like go around to people and look at them and like, do you have any sicknesses? Let's try healing it, like testing their faith like that. Like, all right, let's, let's pray and see if we can heal you right now. And just going up to people like, oh, did it work? Does it feel better? Like, I've seen videos like this. Kind of weird. I'm not saying, like, all of it's ingenuine. I'm just saying it's kind of weird. God isn't telling you to go to a mountain and say, like, all right, I'm going to test my faith and just pray really hard, and that mountain's going to move. He's not asking you to do that. Think about this. The person who told Jesus to do such a thing was Satan. When he was tempted in the wilderness, Satan said, hey, Jesus, if you're really God, all you have to do is take a leap of faith off of this mountain and the angels will catch you. What did Jesus say? The word says not to test the Lord your God. We're not supposed to be just trying all kinds of weird things and just seeing if God answers. We're supposed to ask God, what are the things that you want to accomplish? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In heaven, all of your will is done perfectly. We need to make sure that's done on earth. So how do we do what you want us to do? What is it you want us to pray for? And when we find out what that is, it will be done, guaranteed. If you find out what God wants to do here on this earth and you pray for that, it's going to happen. Absolutely, guaranteed. No doubting. No questions asked. If it's the case that God wants to heal somebody, it will happen. Absolutely, guaranteed. You don't have to worry about that. But finding out, God, through the power of your Holy Spirit, what is it that you want us to pray for? Finding that out. This is how this should change all of our prayer lives. Instead of praying for certain things, and you can pray for specific things for sure, but starting off your prayer is saying, God, what is it that you want us to ask for? What is your Holy Spirit guiding us and leading us to pray for? And from that, praying in faith. Faith in God that he will accomplish what he wants to accomplish. Not working it up. Not trying to conjure it up. Just like in Luke chapter 17, verse 5, the apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. Increase our faith. So the Lord said, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. So where the apostles say to Jesus, hey, my faith is kind of weak. Can you increase it? Jesus says, no, it's not, a, it's not about how convinced you are. It's about the object of your faith. What are you having faith in? Are you having faith in your faith? Well, that's going to be useless. If you're having faith in God, it's going to work. Does that make sense? 
This is why Jesus is talking to this one dude, and he says, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. He still answered. It doesn't matter. Like, you could be doubting. It's okay to have doubts. And you're praying to God, and like, God, I just don't know if I'm convinced. I don't know if I'm sure. I don't even know if you're real. You can pray all those prayers, and God's still going to answer you because you're praying to God. You're not praying to yourself. You're not praying in your faith, whatever. So not presuming on what God will do, but praying according to God's will. And genuine faith will always receive an answer. So in conclusion, multitudes were in proximity to Jesus, but only two were seeking his power. There's a woman with a flow of blood. She had an infirmity for 12 years. She'd gone through the same problem. Tried everything, found it not to work. She came to Jesus and knew if I only touch his garment, if I just see him, I know that I'm going to be made well. If we are just seeking Jesus, if we're sitting before him like, Lord, I don't need anything from you. I just want you. If we pray like that, imagine what God could do. So here's bringing this all together and closing this evening. Um, next week we have Christmas. We have our Christmas party on the 22nd, which is going to be amazing. But once again, I'm going to ask that we think about who are the outcasts? Who can I be Jesus to? Because most of you, like, you're doing okay. Like, you have friends. But there are people out there that are without hope. Like, I've talked to people like that. I don't know if you have. But I've talked to people that are hurting. Going Going through some, like, really hard things. People who have been abused. People who have been mistreated, backstabbed. And we have the ability to tell them, like, hey, listen, what you really hope for and long for actually exists. People are, like, jumping from relationship to relationship, hoping that they're going to find one person that will never break their trust. They can find one person who's not going to lie to them, one person who's not going to backstab them. And you know what? That person exists. His name is Jesus. And we get to tell people about him. And we get to bring him into a church where people might still hurt you and lie about you and backstab you, but we we forgive each other because we're family. We look out for each other. We get to invite them in and say, you're welcome here. So I want you to think about that. Who are the outcasts? I also want you to think about maybe you're here tonight and you have not reconciled with the Lord. You're still searching. You're still like trying everything else. Imagining and hoping because you're believing in a fantasy world where you're going to find the one thing that's going to make you happy apart from God. Listen, I'm going to ask you, what's it going to take? What will God have to do in order to show you that every good and perfect gift comes from above? These good things that we have in this world, we're not supposed to be an end in themselves, just a means through which we see the creator who gives us the good things. What, does God have to remove those things from your life in order to show you that there's no hope found in those things in themselves? What will it take? And why not just trust in him today? And then finally, with our last point, all of us, in thinking about revival and thinking about, like, I would just love to see people just transform. That's, that's the most, for me, that is the thing. Because I grew up in the church. And when I hear about people's lives being transformed, I am, like, so curious. Because I'm, I'm just so interested and how somebody was living one, one way, they're pursuing one thing, and they became completely different. And they're a new creation in Jesus. That is the most interesting thing you can, you can ever find out. And people in our church are like that. People that are in, like, gangs and people that are, like, you know, on drugs. And, 
all different things, and they come here. And they've been made new by the power of Jesus. That's how our movement was started. All the pastors that started these churches, they're all crazy people, or hippies, or druggies, or whatever. And God arrested their hearts, gripped them, and brought them here, and has done a mighty work in them. And that's why we're here. So, praying in faith. Lord, what do you want us to pray for? Maybe it's for next week. Maybe it's for next month. Maybe it's for today. But I want to see your power. Like Moses said, Lord, show me your glory. I want to see you. Not just things from you, but I want to see you. Let's pray.